Welcome, everybody, to We Need to Talk, a podcast out of the Well Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, where we believe that we can't uh, both follow Jesus and run from the conversation. So right now we're, we're in a, a bit of a new season, new territory with this podcast, and that if you're not involved here in the Well Church community on a week-to-week basis and you're just kind of listening from a distance, you may not know that, that recently Pastor Mayor and Steve have stepped down. They had fulfilled their time here at the Well and moved back home to Michigan, and so this season you're going to hear some some new voices. You'll hear some regular voices, like uh, our co-host Ashley Engel. Hello. And uh, <laughs> you know, but we're we're going to be joined by some new voices as we tackle some new topics and things this week. And so uh, this series right now, we're just kind of doing two parts. We're not sure where this season is going to go for us. It's not going to be as kind of weekly regular as our previous seasons have been as we navigate kind of uh, the life of the church and the community. Um, But we decided that we do want to talk about and need to talk about some of the things that we're addressing right now in our series, I Was in the House. When the house burned down, we're focusing on on trauma and how we navigate trauma, how do we heal, how do we move forward. And so our focus is mostly on two main areas of, of church trauma or family of origin trauma. And so we thought it would be a great idea for this series to have a mental health professional come talk to us. Ashley and I are uh, professionals, I would say, maybe in uh, getting mental help, um, but not necessarily giving it. And so we thought maybe we should have somebody who knows what they're doing. So with that, I would like to introduce uh, our guest on the podcast today, and that is Angie Ridings. Angie, go ahead and say hello. Hello, everybody. So Angie is uh, Angie is a certified mental health expert, uh, and and she runs a, a counseling firm here in Edmond, Oklahoma, called Tensegrity Counseling Associates. And she's a licensed professional counselor, licensed alcohol and drug counselor, certified sex addiction therapist, a certified EMDR therapist, and consultant. Angie basically specializes in all forms of uh, trauma and addiction. So that's that's Angie, and that's where we're coming from today. Angie, anything else you want to say about your specialties or or what you're hoping for in, in coming into this conversation? No, you did great. Oh, great. I'm killing it. Well uh, done, Matt. Angie sent us an alternate bio, but I won't read it. But it is much more to the point of, like, what are we doing here? We're not sure, and we're super excited uh, to take that. So basically, this, this episode, we're talking uh, about kind of just the previous three weeks of this sermon series. And so in week one, Rob, who uh, you guys will hopefully hear from in the next episode, wasn't able to be here today, but he he taught, uh, kind of gave an overview of of the houses that we, we grow up in and how they shape us in moving forward to the future and how those, uh, what we would call schemas, uh, help develop us and how, how do we need to break out of those things as we grow or how do we need to kind of transcend and include what we learn. And then in week two, I talked about uh, the trauma of hell culture and, and fear-based evangelism and, and what it looks like to, to follow Jesus and to maybe break down some of the false narratives that we've grown up with. And then in week three this last weekend, Ashley talked about uh, the trauma of, of patriarchy and gender roles within the church and, and you know, hit a, a bit on purity culture and, and some of those things and how do we move forward together as men and women uh, to follow Jesus and, and to lead this community. And so with that, we're going to just kind of dive right into to some questions. Um, question one, this is, uh, it says, don't we want to keep people out of hell and shouldn't that be a part of our motivation for sharing the gospel. And I will say, so this kind of hits on, on what, what my sermon was. And 
I would say yes to an extent. We don't want to keep people out of hell. The problem with this understanding, I think, and the, the approach is that hell is very unclear in, in all of Scripture. Is there are so many different descriptions. Jesus talks about Gehenna and Hades. And there's, there's what we have boiled it down to, I think what can be agreed upon is that the idea of hell exists as the separation from God. That right. is, that's what is most clear about our concepts of hell. Mm-hmm. And I would say, yes, there is to an extent, I don't want people to be separated from God, but it, it, I don't want that to be my primary driver because I think it's, it's a much more, one, it's a much more convincing thing to actually live out what Jesus has called us to and, and to show uh, there's the concept of like a negative or a positive motivator. And I think when we think of things like hell is much more of a negative motivator and and what happens with negative motivators, those kind of come down to our core being, our fight, flight, or freeze responses. These are things that are kind of ingrained in us for survival. And I think that if you look at people who are, you know, maybe what you would consider in survival mode, what tends to happen with those people is they're in protection mode, they're self-preservation mode, they lash out, uh, they're they're acting out of, of trauma and trying to keep themselves safe. And and we we've talked about it over the years in, in parenting and things that like when you you flip your your lid, the amygdala, whenever you enter that fight, flight, or freeze. Um, you're not acting out of your rational brain. You're not living out of your rational brain. You're simply in survival mode. And I think that uh, what is more important for us as, as Christ followers is, is to model that positive thing that, that Jesus came and, and showed us how to live into the kingdom. He showed us a different way of living that would, would provide life. And so if that kind of death and eternal uh, you know, damnation, as people would call it, is our primary motivator, then the way in which we respond to that, the way in which we lead people to Jesus, I think is also negatively impacted. I don't know, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I love this question because uh, we have not, in recent years, done a sermon series on hell, and I think maybe we should. I mean, yeah. I think um, this is a theology which is it's so interesting within the church, Matt, because as you say, in scripture, we can find several different pictures of a place that many people have associated with our modern concept of hell. But yeah. we also know that our modern concept of hell has been influenced um, throughout, you know, throughout the ages by by more of a culture and less of scripture, right? Yeah. And the original scriptural concept was also influenced by the Greco-Roman, um, you know, discussion and idea of what the afterlife would look like, right? And sort of this division of um, what the afterlife would look like for people who live different kinds of lives on earth, right? And um, I think something that really informs this, and and I would say this to this uh, questioner, is you might want to check out the series that we did called On Earth as in Heaven, uh-huh. which is based on the work of N.T. Wright. Yeah. And it's sort of how we as a, a staff and teaching team developed um, and solidified, crystallized our theology around heaven. Um, because again... Which is very weird if you've never really yeah, dove into it. Man, there's some beautiful. wild It's <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, but it's beautiful and it's liberating and it speaks to this uh, motivator that you're talking about. When you... Uh, really have eyes to see what scripture says about heaven and about the kingdom of God. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God when he came. It's now. We are living in Mm. it now. And our human lives have purpose 
everything we do in them will be somehow miraculously through the resurrection of Christ brought into this new creation. People want to be part of that. And when you preach that, when you preach that hope and that joy and that love and that purpose, uh, people want to be part of that. And that's part of that beautiful, freeing uh, um, liberation that comes with this gospel. Um, Whereas if you're preaching just to keep people out of hell, um, you know, whatever your concept of hell may be, um, that's not, it's not effective. And as you said, fear is an incredible motivator, horrible Mm -hmm. teacher. So yeah, Angie, any thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know theology, but I can say that um, I would think God wants a relationship with us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Kind of what we were talking about before the podcast started is, um, you can't really be relational when you're scared. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're in survival mode or protection mode, you're kind of pushing everybody back. You're keeping everybody at a distance. And so God's included in that. Yeah. So how can you get close to God and have a relationship if you're terrified of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you just can't do it. Yeah, absolutely. And when I think, too, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting and as I was, you know, researching and, and stuff for my sermon is that um, there is a narrative within within Christian culture that that would say that Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven in scripture. And I, I, I want to say that's just false. Like, that's not true. And there's, I, I think people have tried to twist some of those verses and, and things to be about hell. Uh, like there was one about the wise and foolish builder that, that this guy was like, well, really what Jesus is talking about is, you know, the, the foolish builders are, are suffering now eternal damnation. And that's really, this is all a narrative about hell. And I was like, that's not, I think, what I've heard I that. got out of that. <laughs> and, and really out of, so out of like, I think it's around 1944, I don't know if that's the exact number of verses that are attributed to the person of Jesus uh, I think it's a hun- like 192 of those are Jesus talking about eternal life and the kingdom, um, whereas I, I can't remember the number, 70 maybe or, or so, uh, that talk about um, hell or some version of Gehenna, again, Hades, um, Sheol. And so the, the large percent, like I think around 10% is Jesus talking about eternal life and the kingdom. Uh, 3% around that hell concept. And again, very different concepts, not one cohesive mm-hmm. thought. And then uh, that means 87% of what Jesus talks about is life and life now and how we live into the kingdom. How how do we navigate the world around us and, and show uh, the goodness of God in that way? And that I think is in this question, that's our most important motivator is how do we follow Jesus here and now? Because that is, I think, one, I, one of the primary things that I find troubling about the way a lot of Christians see is, is their faith is about either delayed gratification or deferred punishment, as opposed to what does it look like to build the kingdom here and now, because that's what Jesus asked, is, is to go into the world, to be the gospel, to be the hands and feet. And you just don't get that with that fight or flight, is that it keeps you protecting yourself from others. It keeps you, obviously, defending your faith in, in radical ways and, and making excuses. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's that. Yeah, I think, I think what a lot of people realize, and I think that, that deconstructing this particular schema um, of fear-based evangelism 
is uh, people reach a place in their faith when they realize what they have been handed. I remember, I remember reaching this point in my own faith where I thought, okay, my purpose is to tell people about Jesus and to save their souls. And that crumbles pretty quickly. Uh-huh. The, it, there's, it's pretty shallow, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you, you, know, you don't have this um, all-encompassing life purpose. This is why I'm here. I'm building for the kingdom now. I am trying to build in ways that will lead to the flourishing of all humanity. I mean, that is something beautiful and bigger than yourself. Um, and so I think a lot of people reach this place where they're like, well, there's not a lot to that. And, um, and I think that's a really normal thing if you've reached that place in your faith and you've been handed this sort of f- fear-based evangelism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of fear-based evangelism, this second question says, I, I was raised in the strange evangelical subculture of the mid-1900s, mid I almost said 1900s, <laughs> the late 1900s, mid-1990s, uh, in the early 2000s where, where fear was a major motivator, and I totally identified with Matt's message. I read all of the left-behind books and saw the movies. I believed with everything that I had that the rapture and all that came after it would happen just as they said. Today, I'm much more secure in my faith, and I've moved past a lot of the fear that was instilled in me, but I still have my moments. Do you guys have any practical advice for how I can live free from the fear of being left behind in that fear of going to hell? Yeah, the first thing I thought about was just some some basic brain science. So um, what you take in on a regular basis is going to create neuropathways in your brain. And so you almost have to seek out new information Mm -hmm. to create new neuropathways. And the more content you take in, the deeper those get, kind of like grooves in a dirt road. So um, I read the books too. Um, I think they were intended to be fiction, but uh, a lot of us thought this is real theology. And so it's confusing. Like based on a true story kind of. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, I mean, I think think you have to be very intentional about um, creating new space in your brain for new information, which means... Um, seeking information, reading books, listening to podcasts, um, doing your own Bible study, actually looking up what the Bible truly says about hell. From what I understand, it doesn't say very much about hell. Um, And really getting uh, getting the facts down, maybe making some notes and spending a good year going through things or do a group study with some friends. Yeah. Um, What ideas do you guys have? I mean, well, kind of piggybacking on what you just said, yeah, it does, the Bible doesn't give, and this is, I think, the problem I have with a lot of people and their approach to theology, is the, at the end of the day, there's a lot of gray space in, in Scripture that we just don't know for certain, and I don't know that we can know until we, we reach that side, and it's the same thing about heaven. Like, we, we did a whole, and you can go back and listen to that episode, I think it's We Need to Talk About Heaven, where we, where we talk about some of these concepts, and that at the end of the day, there are a lot of things that we just straight up don't know. You know, like people ask us questions of like, okay, if if heaven is kind of coming when Jesus returns, what is that? What happens when people die? What is that in between time where Jesus refers to them as sleeping or these other things is that we want to have a very clear view of heaven and hell because that's easier. And that's what we as humans gravitate towards is the binary is so much more helpful for us because we have a clear understanding of where it's going or where it's not going. Mm -hmm. 
but at the end of the day, scripture just doesn't provide that for us in a lot of contexts where it's, and that you see that with Jesus as well as the, the, the teachers of the law and all of these people are constantly presenting, presenting him with one of two options and he's always making a third. And so at the end of the day, you have to, to an extent, be willing to submit that you don't know and that it's okay to not know uh, everything about that. But I, I would say for me in navigating that fear of hell and that fear of being left behind, um, like I had talked about in my sermon is, is what happens is even if you kind of begin to break outside of that, the residue from that trauma uh, affects much more than just the idea of hell. It affects your view of God. It affects the way that you interact with, with figures of authority in your life. And for me, that has played itself out in, in the most unhelpful way of being just completely fearful of, of confrontation and sometimes of, of growth. And I have put off, I think, relationships that would have, would have been helpful to grow and I've let, them, I've let them die off out of my fear for confrontation that like, even though that that conversation would probably result in a better and deeper relationship, I have avoided it altogether because of the possibility that it might go the other way. And being able to recognize that and being able to see it for what it is, that it's fear, and what is my motivator behind that fear, what am I actually afraid of, being able to recognize that as not just a part of my personality, I'm just non-confrontational, like, but recognizing there's a fear that drives that and there's this residue and it's shaped so many narratives in my life that is the starting point, I would say, for, for you to be able to recognize what is this fear and how is it affecting these areas. Once you start to name it, it becomes a little more easier to, a little easier to, to deal with it, to process it. And I've had, you know, conversations where I've had like really dumb things. I had to like call our, our, the company we bought our car from and say, hey, I think that what this thing is was not right. And I think that you should pay for this because it, it's just not right that the, this is what happened. And for me, I was terrified of making that phone call. I'm not those, like, usually I'll let Faith take, take care of the customer service stuff. But I was like, you know what? Actually, this is a fear response. This is me kind of leaning into that narrative that, like, I have to justify my anger at all times. I, it's not okay for me to feel this way and to hold people accountable or whatever that means. And I was able to make that phone call. I was able to have those conversations. And, and so it's just, there's little steps, but really recognition of that is the best thing you could do at the front end in order to move forward out of that trauma response. It's just seeing it for what it is. You can name it, it no longer lives in the shadows. It, it no longer is your primary driver or you're at least aware of that thing driving you. I don't, any other thoughts, Ashley? Mm -hmm. Yeah, along the lines of what you said, Angie, um, in these moments of fear, um, which I experience much less than I used to when I was younger, the farther I kind of travel away from this fear-based evangelism um, that I kind of absorbed from this subculture. I, too, grew up in this subculture. Um, I think a really helpful thing, like Angie said, for me is to uh, dwell on certain aspects of the character of God when I'm in this sort of fear spiral, um, namely the goodness of God. And we are told in scripture that there will be a judgment at the end of all things. Mm -hmm. But when we hold that up against what we know to be true of God, which is that God is good. He cannot be anything other than good. It's, it's so a part of his character that 
the aspects of judgment that have maybe been twisted and infused with fear and weaponized. The fact that God is a just God is a good thing. God is fair, God is just, and you hold that up against his goodness. Um, And another thing I always think of is God bestows such dignity on humanity by giving them choice, you know, a choice of whether to accept him, to follow him or not. I mean, there will be consequences for whatever Mm -hmm. way, whatever we choose, but um, we have that choice. Right. And so that's something I I, I tend to do is dwell on the goodness of God. And and we'll give you guys resources at the end of this. This is so important to us. But one that I just want to put in here because I don't want to forget is the book, The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryan Smith. It's one that we've recommended in the past. And it it is a tremendous book for recentering your attention on his goodness. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing. I what helped me. So a few years ago, I left my childhood denomination and I went through a, quite a process of, of unlearning some things. And what helped me was um, trying to figure out what information came from culture and what actually came from the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it was all so intermingled for me that yeah. I couldn't tell the difference. And so I had to spend a lot of time really doing a lot of study and research. Yeah, yeah, and I think, yeah, unfortunately there are a lot of, of faith leaders that would take their conclusions that they've drawn from scripture as the word of God itself yeah. and saying that like the conclusion that I, that I drew from this, it, like things like the rapture, rapture theology, like we've talked about that uh, in a previous episode of the podcast as well. And, and the understanding of, of the book of Revelation is this thing that's going, it's a future thing that's going to happen and it's not uh, a commentary of what it was at the time and, and things like the mark of the beast is actually this representative of, of Nero and there are a lot of things that like you just don't learn in a, in a Sunday sermon and there are a lot of things that unfortunately pastors have never thought to really do the research on as, as they read it at face value and they draw their own conclusions and then there are so and I think this is important too I want to make sure that we say this is that so many faith leaders are they're leading from this place honestly they're not they're not weaponizing it to to be uh bad people or or for nefarious reasons but they're leading out of a place of this is what they know to be gospel truth that's what they think this is is all meaning and where it's all heading and so uh, i do want to say that that's an important part as we grow and move forward that we make sure that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater that there some of these people very much believe this because that is what at large the faith community has taught them and and so um but doing that yeah being able to do that work of of culture versus what does scripture actually say about this is very helpful because there is a lot of very unhelpful christian culture uh speaking of unhelpful christian culture question three (laughs) this uh person said matt fellow hell house attendee here uh they said i remember a moment when I was about 23 or so, when somebody asked me why I became a Christian and I couldn't answer them. That sparked my journey to getting to know God's true nature. Can you trace your move from fear-based evangelism to a view of a more loving God to a specific moment? How did that shift happen for you? Uh, so yeah, that's, I, you know, I love this question. I would say for me, it wasn't a necessarily a, a specific moment, but it was for me an aversion to a building of Christian culture uh, I would say in the late 2000s to early 2010s, um, I started to pick up on the trend of evangelicalism being really tied to politics and to power. 
And I, it was around the same time. I was around 23 and whenever Faith and I uh, were getting married, we had a a specific, a high school friend of ours whose brother had come out and uh, was in a a gay relationship. And the more time I had spent with them, the more I grew dissatisfied with how the church was approaching the LGBTQ community. And that for me, I, I really started to question God, and then I started to question really the system, and, and saying was like, oh, is this God? Because it's not, there was this cognitive dissonance of who I believe Jesus to be, and then how I saw Christians responding. Um, and so I, I, began, I began to be really deeply dissatisfied with the way that Christians were living out their faith, and, and especially towards marginalized communities or things like, like racial justice. Um, so those were big catalysts for me to start questioning what, like, like Angie just talked about, is this culture or is this scripture? And, and so I, I started to ask those questions and started to realize it was definitely more culture. And so um, as Faith and I had started searching, we had stepped away from the church we were at and started searching for a new position. That was one of the things that um, we had started to look for is like, how, how are these people uh, viewing culture? How do they view their faith, how does that integrate with their lives? And so we, we landed uh, at a church that was Anabaptist, uh, not anti-Baptist, Anabaptist, A-N-A-B-A-P-T-I-S-T, uh, that they, they come from just a different culture. And it was really, for me, one of the biggest challengers they talked about um, was, was peace. And the idea of peace versus war, and you know, and I, I approached that with the same way that everybody else approaches this topic is like, well, what if somebody breaks into my house and wants to harm my family? Like, you know, all of the, but I, through that, I was really challenged with the teaching of Jesus and what it looks like practically to follow Jesus. And it really challenged the schemas that I had had. And so really it was just, a, it was a trend. There were, it was a trend of things that I saw that didn't line up with who I thought Jesus was and who Jesus said he was and how he asked us to live out. And, and so those ships happened gradually over time. And then, you know, obviously, like I had said in my sermon, uh, just a couple weeks ago, was I able to even identify a lot of the underlying fear that I had had. And so uh, I'm still on that journey, I would say, to, to discovering God's true nature. I don't, do either of you have similar stories as far as your trajectory or how you have shed maybe some of the unhelpful weight uh, behind you or when that happened? You don't have yeah, to. You don't have oh, no. to share. We can move on. For me, it's it's um, just very simply. It's when I became a parent. It's when I was about to become a parent to our first. Um, when I thought, <clears throat> like, I need to figure this out. <laughs> I need to examine this, which at the time felt like a very shallow faith. I need to. I need to get to the heart of this. If I'm going to raise my child in this belief system, if I, you know, I'm claiming to base my life around this, what actually is this? Uh-huh. And so for me, it was parenthood. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. So my oldest, when she got to be a certain age, she started asking a lot of questions that I couldn't answer. Yes, they are so good yeah. at that. Yeah, I mean, and it's right before bed. Mm-hmm. Yes, always. Yeah, or on the way home from church. Yeah. Yeah, and gosh, it just stumped me. And that's when I realized I don't even have my own faith. Mm-hmm. I have my yeah. parents' faith. Yep. 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 Yeah. I don't, what, what do I actually believe? I didn't know. And I really had to do a lot of soul searching. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of question asking, especially if you've been raised in the church of going like, what's mine? What do I actually yeah. believe? What was handed to me by my parents or the culture. And I mean, I, you know, I grew up 
with a whole family of pastors. So there's a lot of that in there of just going like, I, you know, it wasn't until probably my 20s that I started to go like identify my faith as my own and not just as an inheritance or something like that. Yeah. Um, speaking of family dynamics, man, I love that the way that this conversation just keeps flowing into each question. Uh, and I promise that this isn't like intentional. I keep saying this because I'm surprising myself. So I was like, oh, this leads really well into this. Uh, this person asked, they said, what's the kindest slash most direct approach to interact with family members who have helped build an unhealthy schema, but did so because they're genuinely convinced that they hold a truth that will save their loved ones from eternal damnation? Yeah, Ooh. that's deep. <laughs> how do you, yeah. How we're, do you can... we're about to enter the holiday season, Angie. We need this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Well, the short answer is boundaries, curiosity, and gentle redirection. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I always go to being relational. So I think if, if you want to keep those relationships, you have to adopt a, a stance of curiosity yeah. and try and understand where they're coming from. Um, but also, you don't have to have every conversation. Yeah. It's okay to have boundaries yeah, around sure. certain topics. It's okay to change the subject. It's okay to have really firm boundaries and say, I'm not discussing this topic with you anymore. Yeah. Um, but if you want to try, I mean, it's okay. Just be curious about where they're coming from. But if they can't listen to you and it's a one-way conversation, that's not very healthy. Yeah. So uh, I actually have some books to recommend. Um, yeah. So the first one is um, Set Boundaries, Find Peace. It's by Nidra Glover Tawab. It's an excellent book. And then her follow-up is Drama Free, A Guide to Managing Unhealthy Family Relationships. Oh, so that sounds like there a great you go. read. It's a nice <laughs> fall read. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I would say similar to that as, you know, I've had to, to navigate this a, a lot with my own family. And, and there's a, I remember as we were going through our like pastoral search years ago, uh, talking about what are the things that are, um, absolutes for us what here's what we we will not negotiate on these beliefs these are you know the person of jesus the the trinity um and what are the things that like they're they're negotiable like these are not uh salvific issues i guess is what we would would describe them as and and at the end of the day one you have to be able to recognize there are some people who will take an absolute salvific stance on things that genuinely do not matter uh, at, at the end of the day. Like they, and they will go like, no, if you drink alcohol, you will go to hell. There are people that genuinely believe that. Those are people I would say, just be aware of and don't engage in the conversation. It's not, it's all it will do is send you into a spiral and into reacting in, in ways that are harmful to your own health. And so, uh, knowing, yeah, like Angie said, those boundaries are, are helpful, but also being able to set that boundary and say, oh, here are the things that I am willing to, to take a stand on. There are some topics that whenever it comes to my family and, and things like politics get brought up, I'm enough to where I, you know, I believe that both sides are mostly wrong all the time. And they're just, it's always just that kind of back and forth. Nobody's ever helpful. Um, I, I'm okay with hearing some of the stuff that they have to say and, and letting it slide. Um, but there are issues whenever those conversations move past, I think like policies and they start to attack people in general. I, I am fully comfortable to challenge that and say that this is not what Jesus has asked of us. And I'm okay. I will make that argument every time. 
but for my own sanity, I've, I've had to say, like, there are tangential issues that I would love to have an argument about that just don't matter, and it's really not worth it for the sake of preserving the relationship. Unfortunately, if you are that person who's asking this question, you're, you tend to be the one that has to do most of the mental work anyways to say, I'm not going to engage in this, and I'm not going to you know, I'm not gonna fall to that bait. And you gotta recognize that that's a lot of that conversation that you have is, is, is this person somebody who I trust is genuinely wanting to listen? And also, are, are you genuinely, are genuinely wanting to listen? Do it, are you curious about why does this person actually believe that? And, and if you're not, you know, th then it's up to you. you. Like, if you wanna just fight for the sake of fighting, I guess that's a call you can make, but for the sake of your own you know, mental health and the relationships that you have, there are some issues that you don't have to challenge. You, you, it's okay to know we just believe differently about this thing and I don't, I don't feel the need to convince you otherwise it's not worth the effort. It's not a salvific issue, you know? So, I don't know, that's my two cents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I think I agree with both of you. Um, I think for it's doing the work of knowing your own boundaries, like you said, Angie, and knowing, um, I think one of the things we really try to do, do here at The Well, this is one of our primary aims, is to, even though it's difficult to live in this tension, to have as many people at the table as possible. Yeah. And there are people in our congregation who hold very different views from one another on certain topics. But we have Republicans here, we have Democrats here, we have independents here, we have people who don't participate in politics here, you know, to take the political route. But I think if our aim is to keep as many people at the table as possible, because we believe that when we do uh, show up in love and step in in love and, and do show curiosity, as Angie said, that is where genuine change can take place. Yeah. That is where you build that foundation of mutual respect. And if you're willing to listen, maybe they're willing to listen and, and, and change can happen somehow. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. absolutely. All right, so this, this next question, uh, they said, I know that fear-based evangelism has worked for so long because it's presented people with such an urgent uh, thing that they can respond to, you know, the end times, accidents could happen at any moment. You see, you know, the billboards that are, if you die right now, Man, are you those going billboards. to heaven or hell? Uh, yeah, those spark good conversation with your children. Yeah, they, you know, <laughs> It's they not can. scary at all. But they said, on, on the flip side, I also believe that when the gospel is presented with all grace and not truth, that removes the sense of urgency. So as pastors and teaching team, how do you navigate and balance while focusing on the gospel plain and simple? Is this part of the reason why the well doesn't do a normal altar call or opportunity during service to pray, uh, to pray with and make a decision, so to speak? And then they added a PS, what was your most traumatizing hell house room? <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, I don't remember what my most traumatizing one is, but I will say that the drunk driving one was always one that like stood out to me. That one um, was in every hell house. Yeah, and that was like, a, you know, just a, that was a constant thing that my mom talked about was that like, if you drink alcohol, you know, like, I remember when my sister was like 11 and my mom was like, I wouldn't drink alcohol and, you know, go to sleep and miss Brooklyn's graduation. And I was like, you think that's what alcohol does? It's like, you're going to be out for the next seven years. It was, I don't know, you know, so that's always one that was really kind of tied around uh, my upbringing at least. So maybe that. Uh, so anyways, to answer this, this question, uh, how do we navigate this? So well, I will say, uh, obviously there, there is this, and this is something that Ashley and I have talked at length about is, um, what you see in Christian culture is all, always this kind of pendulum swing that there is, 
you know, when Christianity swings far right, there's always a response that, that swings back the other direction, far left. And it's like almost every time, we're all, it's just missing the point on both sides is that we've swung way too far now in the other direction. And how do we navigate the middle where I think that's, that's what we're called to be is some, somewhere in here. Um, and so that, you know, for me, that's required asking a lot of questions about like, you know, my, where I've landed on, on certain issues. But I will say that like, I, the, the hell evangelism, that urgency as a driver uh, is wrong. Uh, we had talked about that already. I think the other side of that, that all grace is also wrong because scripture tells us that Jesus came with grace and truth. Those are things that have to, to go together. So how do we navigate both of those things simultaneously? That's, that's our goal. You know, obviously, like Ashley just talked about, of keeping all of these people at the table is that I, I don't ever want to sacrifice the truth for grace and I, or, or vice versa. Um, and so how do we navigate that? Honestly, for us, we, we, we stick with Jesus. We have this Christocentric lens of how did Jesus navigate the world around him? How did he call people to, to something more? And, and that is, that's constantly our, our question is, what are the questions that our community is asking? What are the things that they're struggling with, they're wrestling with? And how is, is Jesus leading us as a staff and as a team to address those things? Because I think that's a big part of it. A lot of the, what we talk about is because we feel like this is where the Holy Spirit is leading us. And then a lot of what we talk about is also because this is where we think our people are and what they're asking and what they're dealing with. You know, hey, how do we address that? How do we move forward? I, basically, what I would say is our, our decision, you know, and this leads to the kind of the, the altar call opportunity thing and why we haven't... Um, done that or that hasn't been this persistent part of our in our every service, service. Yeah. yeah we've we done do. it we've sure. done it before yeah and for we sure. provide baptism opportunities and things like that but yeah, as a but, every sunday but we've all yeah we've all come from different church contexts and right. what i would say is m so many churches that they do that altar call but they fail on the back end when it comes to discipleship yes. mm -hmm. and that is the call that i would say that we have really focused our energy on is practical discipleship what does it look like to actually follow jesus in the day-to-day -day? Yeah. so that is that's how we navigated our, our the language on our website the language of like if you come here and you do our first step class that's really a deep dive into the specifics of what we believe mm -hmm. and how we live out that faith how that affects the mission of our community and so we're really focused on that aspect is discipleship practical faithfulness what does it look like to actually live it out and walk alongside one another and we're not we're not just in a numbers game we're not just trying to get people to raise their hands and i know that there are a lot of churches that that's not their intention either but they just they just don't have the space to to try to navigate a robust discipleship while also carrying all of the other programs that they do and so we you know, uh, that's part of our intention and how we talk about programming is, is how does this affect the way that we're able to practically live out the gospel? So, uh, yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anything else? Great. Nothing. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm a genius. Agreed. I got it. Nailed it. <laughs> you nailed it. That's it. <laughs> okay. All right. So this, uh, this next one, this is, uh, this is a good one. So they said, uh, basically, uh, they sent us a lot of their thoughts, but they said, to kind of sum it up, when it comes to the topics of, of things like we're talking about, trauma, hell culture, gender roles, it seems like much of the church views Jesus' teaching as the exception and not the norm. Mm -hmm. So how do we 
come to such different conclusions after studying the same passages with so much of the same educational background as maybe these other communities? Mm -hmm. uh, the first thing I thought of when I read this question was Rob's teaching in week one about how Jesus challenged schemas all the time <laughs> and he, w he disrupted schemas yeah. all the time. It yeah. led to his death. Um, uh, and I think there is a tendency in many churches to stay away from difficult topics and conversations yeah. because um, it can go very poorly for you. <laughs> you know, yeah. like when you're preaching the gospel, um, you, you, you will be challenged. You will be, um, you'll be challenged yeah. and it can be really difficult to do sometimes. And so that was the first thing that came to my mind is that, um, Jesus is the third way, you yeah. know, he doesn't fit the, the binaries. And so if, if you're not preaching what people are used to or what, uh, what, what they think scripture should say, sometimes you're going to get pushback. Right. But this question is so multifaceted. I think, um, we do have to look at, um, the educational uh, uh, programming for, you know, that's that's educating pastors. Yeah. A lot of seminaries do have um, a specific denomination attached. Yeah. They do or have biases or, biases or yeah. a, a hermeneutical lens, yeah. you know, or viewing scripture as um, inerrant. Um, you know, is your institution teaching pastors to uh, interpret the scripture very literally on the surface? Um, or are they teaching a more contextual um, lens, like looking at culture and, yeah. you know. Um, so I think um, this question is really multifaceted. And, and for me as a teacher, I find um, that it's not healthy for me to um, spend too much time thinking about what, um, what other pastors are doing necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, I find that for me... I'm, I'm so much healthier and so much um, more focused as a teacher when I spend time um, in, you know, in the truth of what Jesus says. Jesus, is, as you said, Matt, is always our lens through which we read all of the rest of Scripture. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it is strangely reassuring when we do experience pushback because um, we see that in the life of Jesus and we see that in, you know, in the lives of people who do preach the gospel that um, you will come up against challenges. Um, am I making any sense? Yeah, it's such no, a multifaceted absolutely. question. I just think, um, you know, you, you see scripture used in so many different ways and so many different denominations. You yeah. see it interpreted in different ways over many different denominations, different seminaries teach a different way of interpretation. And so I think when you are engaging with the church and their teachings, be sure you know what, where they're coming from. Be yeah. sure you know, um, you know, ex watch some sermons, read some of the writings, attend a service, and just kind of see uh, uh, where they're coming from. Because the truth is, everybody comes to the to scripture with presuppositions yeah. and with an with some kind of an angle. So be sure you know what that is. Um, I think for me, when at the seminary I attended, which was Denver Seminary, 
I was so fortunate because, and I kind of wandered into seminary, honestly. <laughs> the story of how it happened is so wild, and God truly had his hand on me because I ended up in a place that had what they call a generous orthodoxy. And so I learned alongside people from many different denominations. And I, uh, I found that I didn't interpret scripture the same way as all of them, but I was given grace on those issues, like Matt, that you said, that are not salvific. Maybe I landed on a different um, topic differently than someone else. There may have been people in my seminary, well, I know there were, who were not entirely comfortable with me preaching. Um, all of that to say, when you are engaging with the teaching of a church, just make sure you know where they're, where they're coming from. What is their hermeneutical or their interpretive lens? And for me, it's always Jesus. If yeah. Jesus is not the ultimate authority on how you interpret scripture, go elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, that was a rambling response to yeah, question I, number yeah. six. Well, I would say my, my own thought on this is, you know, how do we come to such different conclusions is that, uh, a lot of the church, I would say a lot of the capital C church is, uh, they're very concerned with almost protecting the image of God. And it leads them to like, there are so many things where I've heard so many, you know, like pastors and people talk about like the strength that they have to show uh, from their kind of stage persona, not allowing people to see weakness and in, in humanity in that because they, they need a strong leader. And I just don't see that in scripture. That Like, like scripture is, is really clear about the flaws and the people that it uses, like David and Samson, Peter. Uh, like Peter is the person I relate to the most because he's just so consistently gets it wrong and it's just like, but he just keeps showing up. And, and I think that's so much of, of, of the church. But there is this, you know, I've seen it more and more that, that churches are concerned with, and I think for, I think there are valiant reasons often that they don't want people to see the church as a mess if we are honest about what is happening within leadership and, and these people. They, they need to present a unified front because how otherwise people are not going to be convinced by that. They're going to be like, no, you guys are a mess. But I think we've reached a point, especially in emotional intelligence in our culture, where that is actually the thing that a lot of people want to see. They want to know how are we being, and it was been a very intentional uh, decision on our part to be transparent about our leadership changes and, and how that's been being navigated as a church and the conversations that we're having at a leadership level with our elders and with our staff because we, we believe that this is, this is a, a collective work, that this isn't a, you know, us over them, that there are, I would say definitely, like, and even in scripture, there are qualifications and that, that our leaders should be people that are holding themselves to a higher standard and, and above reproach, but there is also an honesty and an integrity in being transparent about our own struggles as well within that, and I think that that is, that's a big differentiator in our motivation and how we approach the gospel towards people. We arrive at different conclusions because I think at the end of the day, our, our conclusion is, is how, how are people seeing the reality of what it looks like to follow Jesus? I don't want them to see, I don't want to front. You know, I don't want them to go like, oh, this is what it looks like on the outside and, and be a church that so often is that do as I say and not as I do kind of vibe. And we see it like it's just progressing more and more in culture and that's a part of our conversation. But I would say even in that, there's an honesty within us to, like, we're willing to learn. We're curious because I do think that there are things that we often get wrong, 
and we have we are now responsible for kind of challenging ourselves on on what are those things. I think that you know where we're at in our our walk as a church is I think that sometimes we do have this mistake of sacrificing conversation around sanctification and holiness in in order to to make sure that we're we're keeping everybody at the table and and I want to figure out how do we navigate these things that you know it's about challenging ourselves and and our own assumptions and basically at the end of the day we are just not satisfied with thinking that we know everything and that's where we arrive at I think a lot of different conclusions than other churches is that other churches feel like in order for people to really accept Jesus, they have to be certain mm -hmm. on everything. And we are, I think, just in a time where nuance means a lot to people, mm -hmm. where they can navigate the gray because we acknowledge the existence of the gray. Mm -hmm. I think an attitude that we that we try to hold and, and a phrase that we throw around is we we hope that we're teaching people how to think and not what to think. Yes, you yes. Know? Yeah. There it is. That's, you know, I think there's our difference. <laughs> there it is. All <laughs> of that to say. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think a lot of that is formed by the trajectory of Christianity, you know, for so much the, the people that taught were the only people that know how to read, you know, like that. I think we've come by a lot of these things. Honestly, we're just at a point where we're now able to process that and break it down and go like, what's the best way forward now? We, we no longer are living in this economy. And so, yeah. All right, so question seven, let's get into it. Uh, this says, if patriarchy wasn't God's intention for humanity, why does he decree in Genesis 3.16 that man shall rule over his wife? And also, why does the Bible say wives submit to your husbands? Mm -hmm. So now we've switched over to the patriarchy content <laughs> of the podcast. We've been in the fear-based evangelism. Now we're on to patriarchy. Um, this is actually a question that was posed to me after the service on Sunday, this person shall remain anonymous. That was their request. No, name. No, uh, name names. No, but it's such a good question um, because, and again, this is where context becomes very important within scripture. If we read Genesis uh, 3.16 uh, at a very surface level, right, we see um, that you will you, you will desire your your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So on the surface, this is God speaking to Eve. On the surface, you're like, oh, okay, God is decreeing this, yeah. right? And in the Bible, when you're reading along and you see maybe like an indentation or a place where the cadence of the wording changes, it's your clue that um, this is a different type of language, a different type of thing that's being communicated. And so what we see in this passage is what we could call a curse. And in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, we see blessings and curses. But I love how the Bible project puts it. This, what we see in Genesis 3.16, is what we would traditionally call a curse. But the Bible project says it this way, and I love this. In the Bible, when we see curses... It's when God hands people over to the consequences of their actions. Mm -hmm. Or in this case, it's of trying to seize blessing uh, on their own terms, right? Yeah. To try to pursue knowledge apart from God, to try to put themselves in the place of God, which yeah. is what happened when Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not that God didn't want Eve to have that knowledge. It's just that life with God is a journey, right? And, and mm -hmm. um, she wasn't ready for that knowledge, but she chose to pursue it without him. 
But what I always like to say about this passage and the way I envision it, especially because one of the roles I play is as, as a parent, is that I picture God and the whole tone of it changes when I imagine God speaking to Eve and, and Adam, because he also gives this information to Adam, as if he is heartbroken yeah. by their choices, right? Um, and, and if you're a parent or a caretaker, you get this, right? Like um, we see in this passage, excuse me, I'm losing my voice, that God curses the serpent and he curses the ground. He tells Adam that um, working the ground will be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important for us to see that he never curses the humans directly. They will struggle to work the land. Uh, work will be a struggle. The ability to pro- procreate will be a struggle. And But what I focused on in this message is that the perfect alliance that God envisioned for men and women would be a struggle from this point forward. We would have the so-called battle of the sexes. Um, but what I think for us to, to recognize here too is that at the end of this is this beautiful promise for redemption. God doesn't leave them in this, right? He's heartbroken and he says, oh, essentially, because you have chosen what would hurt you, this is, this is the consequence, right? And, I, and I, God gave them the dignity of that choice, yeah. right? And warned them of the consequences in advance, yeah. right? Um. But as always, there's this beautiful promise of redemption, and he tells Eve that your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. He will strike uh, the offspring's heel. And we on the other side of Jesus know this to be Jesus, right? Um, Jesus was killed, but first he, he, but then he overcame death and crushed the head of the serpent, right? Yeah. Um, but this beautiful promise of redemption and so that's always helpful when reading this passage and when reading curses in the Old Testament, because there are plenty of them throughout the prophets and, and all these things. And when read on the surface, it's like, oh, God is so vengeful. God yeah. is angry and he's punishing. But in truth, God removes his, uh, his protection yeah. and yeah. allows the consequences to occur. Yeah. yeah? I, well, I think that, yeah, that is, that's a, bit, a really big helpful piece to this is navigating it, is, is understanding it that I think much of the, the Christian culture has identified this curse as God's intended design. Right. And there is a big difference in that, that this, this would be, the, the curse would be the consequence, not the, this is not the blueprint that he right. had intended. Right. And, and so this, you know, I, I think as we as we grow and we move forward, we, we realize, and this is what the concept for me that, is, that has helped me as I navigate things like the Old Testament, there's a lot of hard scripture in there that you go like, I don't know how to make sense of this. I don't know why they'd include it. It feels gross and that there's no redeeming, you know, theme underneath. It's just that like this is terrible. And there's a lot of, of scripture like that, especially in, in the Old Testament. And and when you're able to step back and recognize the trajectory of the gospel is what I would, would say is, is progressive revelation is that that God is God often makes sacrifices to meet us where we are. Mm-hmm. That it, it's not that He just drops in His own will, and we're able to to live into that fully. That's the way we see, you know, things like an eye for an eye. What we would consider now as a bit barbaric was a huge, like a, a huge 
like undertaking for people in getting outside of the violent culture in which they were a part of. And, and G, or God, you know, throughout the story is meeting people where they are. And so, you know, being able to look at it and say that this Old Testament understanding of, of certain things, that's not the blueprint. This is God meeting us in a, a specific time and place and revealing a little bit of his nature, and, and it, it keeps going and going and, and trending upwards until we get to the person of Jesus, who is the fullest representation of God. And so I would just say, as you look at some of these schemas that, that you've been handed, are you, are you identifying this thing? Is, is this a blueprint that you've been given of God's intended design, or is this something that that we are suffering the consequences of? And, and sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. But this is one of those things that I, I you know, for me, it was a huge struggle uh, in my relationship with my wife. Is that we, I would say, are almost on the flip side of what the the gender roles are, and that my wife is much more confident with with confrontation and, and taking the lead and, and addressing things head on. And that is, for me, I would say. It was a really big thing for me to overcome and my comfortability in being a man, uh, what it means to be a man and how it means to, to lead uh, was saying that like, oh, I, I have been trying to kind of disastrous effects to fit a mold that was not meant for me because this is what I believed to be the blueprint. Whereas I think in some ways, there is a curse that has been carried out, and that's why I've toiled with this concept so much, is, is for that very curse. And so, uh, you know, just navigating some of that, asking that question, is this, is this a blueprint? Is this God's intended design, or is this God meeting us in a moment where we are, but that's not where he intended to take us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Andy, do you have anything about that one, that particular one? No, y'all are doing great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Thanks. Angie. Thank you. That's great affirmation. Okay. Well, well hey, you might have something. On well, this. there's a second part. Oh, is there, me, did I miss yeah. It? Okay. Just really quickly asking about why does God? Um, let's see. Let's see. What oh, was wives it? submit to your husbands. Right. Why does the Bible say wives submit to your husbands? I think again, this is where a really um, it becomes really important to place scripture within its context. Yeah. Not only within uh, the book where you find it, because. Um, you know, you find a certain cultural influences playing into this verse, but also, um, cult, you know, when you think about, and I talked about this in my message a lot, this ancient patriarchal context, right? We still see patriarchy at play today, even though women have made tremendous advances since biblical times, patriarchy is alive and well, and it always will be until the restoration of all things, which is why we have to come to this conversation differently, yeah. right? As Christ followers. Well, to sum up what Ashley's trying to say real quick, <laughs> just so you guys hear it from me. a man, I just want to say, no. <laughs> no mansplaining. No mansplaining today. Um, but I think when we look at this ancient patriarchal context, in ancient writings, you do not hear. Um, I, I think the most important part of this passage is where it says, um, husbands, you, you uh, uh uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church, or um, you know, you're the head of, of your wife as Christ is the head of the church. I think that is the more um, countercultural, uh, really um, disrupting the schema of this ancient patriarchal culture. Is that there's not much at all in ancient writings of of men loving their wives in this sacrificial way because what did Christ do for the church? Yeah. He sacrificed himself. He yeah. died for the church. And so what ancient man 
was willing to do this in the way that culture was set up, right? Yeah. Marriages were more of a transaction and, and wives were considered to be property. And um, yeah. and so this is the, the real meat of this passage. And, and it shows that the intention is you are to mutually submit yeah. and lay down your lives and your desires for one another. And so I, that's yeah, what I yeah, would say it's about no, that. It's no longer addressing the property, it's addressing the personhood. Yeah. And I think that's a big distinction. Again, it's God meeting us where we are and in that cultural context. You know, like things like uh, women adorning themselves with jewelry. Like there are very specific reasons in that cultural context that scriptures like that were used and you see it play out with, you know, a lot of... Uh, communities that dress plain clothes, that they take those things as a, a literal, you know, thing for their context today. And, and you just, when you look at the context, we are able to see, I don't think that that's what the message is trying to tell us. You know, they're, they're concerned with the image of, you know, prostitution and these things. And that's just not the context that we have anymore. So, um, yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that that there is it's it's a transition especially in that latter half of of mutual respect and and love and admiration and not just ownership and and property. Yeah. Um, okay, so so this question uh, they said, what would you say to people who were raised in the purity culture movement who have struggled with intimacy in their relationships? Purity culture taught that, that sexual relations of any kind were sinful, uh, but once they got married, there's supposed to be just kind of this f switch that gets flipped, and, and you know, you're know you now perfectly compatible as, as sexual partners. So how do you suggest moving forward and keeping to the truth of God's best for us while dismantling the unfruitful parts? How can God, or how can people get help with the trauma that that caused, specifically how to move forward without the shame that comes from exploring your own body and another's within the context of marriage. So, ooh, lots of, there's a lot in this. Yeah. And, yeah. Angie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a complex question. Um, okay, so to start, uh, the majority of my clients that are Christian have this struggle. Yeah. So I just want to normalize that this is a, a yeah. I myself have, we have had, yeah, we have had this same yeah. struggle. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Therapy, I'm biased, of course, but I think therapy is a really good mm -hmm. way to uh, untangle some of these beliefs. But you know, on the heels of the patriarchy converse, conversation, um, purity culture was built around patriarchy. And most of what people struggle with, if they're Christians, is this idea that um, it, it's really kind of a pornified way of seeing yeah. a sexual relationship. That's not even real. Yeah. Um, that's not how relationships actually work. Um, so get into some therapy and, and undo some of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot in that culture, I would say that it's just so unhelpful. And, and there's been, I've seen a lot of memes that, that really poke fun at it in, in funny ways, but really address kind of what the underbelly of this thing is that like, you know, in, in youth group, when you got to sex night, it was essentially like the youth pastor's like, hey, guys, we're going to go grab pizza and play dodgeball. And then the girls are going to learn about how their virginity is the most important thing mm -hmm. that they possess. And it was like, I just like the, the way in which that conversation was approached, the difference between boys and girls that I saw mm -hmm. even growing up was like, it was wild. And no wonder we see so much trauma from this is because... It, women were made to be accountable for themselves and for the men. And the men were basically like, hey, man, we know you all got these desires, but, like, just try not to, like, act on them. 
and you know, like, let's go hit the hoops. And then like girls, it was just like, you are unloved by God. You will be seen as worthless if you do anything sexual before marriage. And if you wear spaghetti strap If you shirts. Yeah, spaghetti, oh God, not, don't get me started on spaghetti straps, holes in your jeans, come on. Uh, you know, might as well be a prostitute. And so, but there is, yeah, there was this real huge emphasis on, on what girls were supposed to do and their responsibility and almost very little, uh, basically for guys, it was like, stop looking at porn and you're good, okay? Like the rest is on the girls. So if you or fall into sin, it's their fault. Wait until you're married and then your wife will fulfill your yeah your porn fantasies for y- exactly. you. Exactly, yeah. Like is, that's what she's yeah. for. And mm-hmm. that, I mean, you know, it's, it's wreaked havoc on... I, there are countless people, almost every Christian I have ever known that's gotten married has in some form struggled with this because the way it has been talked about is so unbelievably unhelpful. Mm-hmm. And I, like we've, we've talked about it here at the church that, that as Christ followers, we, we do adhere to a radical sexual ethic and that's important. But the, the way that we talk about it matters. The, and it's just, it's been talked about so poorly and with such... Uh, kind of an abusive trend towards the way that it's approached. And, and I think we're seeing it play out. We see it play out now and how, how much sex, sex abuse there is in the church. Um, they all piggyback off of the same kind of fear and it's damaging. And so I agree with, with Angie that the, the best thing that you can do is, is begin to unpack that box in a safe space like therapy. That is, you know, something that my wife and I have done and, and, and continue to do and, I just, I don't know how else you get outside of it, you know, other than than that kind of avenue. Yeah. Well, and so to take that further, um, purity culture doesn't even consider the people who have experienced abuse. So they were forced into a situation. They didn't even get to choose. And at times has blamed those people actually for their own abuse. And that's, you know, where you get, again, this, the underbelly. But yeah, it it doesn't take... if it takes that into consideration, it's weaponized almost. For sure. Yeah, so just a, just a quick stat for you. According to the CDC, one in four girls have experienced some sort of sexual abuse and one in 13 boys. Mm-hmm. So it's not even fair to expect everybody to have the same standard. Yeah. And um, not to mention that teenagers are impulsive and they have hormones and raging yeah. hormones and accidents happen. and. Um, they need to know that they're not what they've done. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, maybe they made a mistake or something bad was done to them, but that still doesn't change um, what they can have in their marital relationship. And so there's a lot for a person to deal with when yeah. they get married. There's, there's usually some sort of history in our, in our culture today. It's, it's difficult to get to marriage and still be a virgin or not have had something bad happen to you. So um, we just need to be realistic and practical. Um, Not that we shouldn't try, um, but again, the purity culture um, is so toxic. And my main advice is throw all of your Christian sex and marriage books away. Yeah. Throw them away. They're all trash. Uh, <laughs> most of them don't even yeah. <laughs> um, most of them don't even talk about consent 
because yeah. women, it's just a given that yeah. women are property. So mm-hmm. um, fortunately, there, there's some new research being done, and I want to mention this real quick because um, this, this can veer off in the several directions. I don't know where we're yeah. going to go. but oh, go, Angie, go. <laughs> um, but real quick, I just want to mention some new research um, in the book called The Great Sex Rescue. So if you're going to buy a Christian book about sex, please buy this one. Mm-hmm. All of the other ones, throw them away. Um, it's called The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Taught and How to Recover What God Intended. Um, the authors are Sheila Ray Guaguar and her daughter Rebecca Lindbach and Joanna Sawatsky. I think one of those is her daughter-in-law and one's her daughter. So um, they've done some really solid research and, and their book is based on facts and statistics. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the Christian um, uh, purity culture and sex and marriage, and it's a it's an excellent read. Yeah. Um, okay, so 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 we should be talking about sexuality and sex and um, all of the things related to that with our children. I mean, they're yeah. they're born with gender and sexuality, and so this ought to be in a in a perfect world. It should be a conversation all throughout childhood it should be a normal thing that's talked about Um, but instead we've we the collective church has made it into this taboo topic that we're afraid to discuss yeah yeah it's become some it's very difficult to uncouple sex from shame and I would say just practically speaking in this again this it's a diff it's not like as easy as it sounds but Mm -hmm. but just being able to recognize and, and especially in those moments that that God is not a God that uses shame as a tool for learning. So whenever you feel that and, and you begin to see that, just being able to recognize that is a helpful start that what you've been handed is unhelpful and it's, it's okay that you're still carrying that because mm-hmm. that's you know the consequence of, of so much of this teaching. But just being able to recognize in those moments, I'm feeling shame and I can at least name it that this is not what God is intending for me to feel in this moment, that this is not God's design. That's not a tool that God is using to get me closer to him or to get this relationship closer to him. And so just, you know, naming that is helpful. And I'm curious, Angie, to hear you speak a little bit more about that as a parent. Like, what are some helpful ways that we can be talking about about sex with our kids? Well, I mean, our bodies, we've been taught that our bodies are, are bad. Yeah. And so um, there's even just how we treat our children at, mm-hmm. at bath time and them being curious about their bodies and asking questions. Yeah. How you respond to those things is important. Yeah. And not shaming them for being curious or yeah. noticing they have a certain body part or asking questions about their sibling or... Um, I mean, I think that's where it starts, yeah. and yeah. it just continues from there. Yeah, for sure. Just keeping a real open door. You know, yeah. I, I was laughing. I think I may have told you this. Like, I've made my children a promise that they can ask me anything, and I will, I will be honest, mm-hmm. you know, in an age-appropriate way with them. And there have been a couple times where I'm like, oh, man, I wish I hadn't promised that. <laughs> right. You just, can't take that back. No, I can't take that back. <laughs> but, yeah, just having those open lines of communication, um, as hard as it may be and as awkward as it may be, you know, yeah. Like yeah. it's important. Yeah. You want your kids to come to you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, that transparency, openness, and being able to ask anything that they're wondering. 
Um, encourage yeah, that, curiosity. Yeah, encouraging curiosity. I was just going to yeah. say that the curiosity aspect is something that I think is is the most helpful. Like even growing up, I think I probably could have asked my parents about a lot of it. My parents have always been pretty open about that thing. But, you know, again, I also have inherited a lot from the culture. But, like, I would always ask my questions to my oldest brother. Like, <laughs> that's who I felt comfortable coming in and talking to. But that, like, yeah, the ability to see their curiosity and meet it where it is as opposed to deflecting with shame because you're not ready to address it is like the way that we respond to those things really matters and that's mm-hmm. <laughs> i've got you know i've three and five year old or almost six year old and they are very curious about their bodies and you know my wife and i have been very intentional about the terminology that we use the correct terminology mm-hmm. that we're not given cute nicknames and things like that and it's that makes it's made family members very uncomfortable when my boys talk about their body and I've had to have conversations to say, hey, listen, I get that that makes you uncomfortable, but we're not, I'm not going to allow them to feel shame for their own body, okay, mm-hmm. for, for being able to name it what it is. That's important. It's mm-hmm. important that they know that. And I've been able to give some of the statistics around that as well in that, mm-hmm. that the likelihood of them being abused because of the terminology that they use decreases yeah. and, and things like that. And so being able to say, hey, listen, I get it. Because it it's surprising when you hear a three-year-old talk about his body in some very blunt ways that you go like that's it is surprising and it can really can throw you off but saying hey listen I get it but at the same time this is more important Mm -hmm. that that they understand this and that they feel safe in this way and so yeah curiosity is important yeah these kids uh, are curious yeah yeah well and shame thrives in secrecy so that's something Mm -hmm. just to keep in mind yeah Um, and since I'm an addiction specialist, I'll just throw out addiction thrives in secrecy. Yeah. And shame and addiction go hand in hand. So um, it's just, it would prevent so many problems yeah. if we had open dialogue with our kids. Oh, Age sure. appropriate sure. dialogue. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Let's see. I'm looking at my notes. Um, we need all your wisdom, Angie. <laughs> I don't know how much time you want to spend on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and um, couples that come to me that have had issues, um, just real quick, I thought I'd throw out that um, it's never too late to start over. Um, That's good. If there's been some... Like get a new marriage? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, like a, uh, I was thinking marriage oh, 2.0. Wow. <laughs> okay. Renewing 2. your marriage, 0. maybe. Okay, yes, not renewing. just like, it's yeah. never too late to start over. Like, hey, listen, just find someone else, okay, at this point. You know, it's too late for you guys. <laughs> this is why context is important. Yeah, just want to yeah, make sure that we're matters. on the same page here. <laughs> right. that you're not telling right. people, just, you know what? No. Just start over (laughs) no and if a therapist says that to you you need a new therapist okay great Uh, therapist should not be telling you what to do with your marriage okay um no it's never yeah it's it's never never too late to to create something new with your spouse yeah um there you go um, okay tear it down to the foundation and build it back up again yeah um but the expectations we bring into marriage um the expectations we have around sex and around what our spouse's job and responsibilities are uh, you need to have those early, early and often. Mm-hmm. Um, those expectations can get in the way of intimacy. Um, how much further do you want to take this? I <laughs> mean, that's it's up to you. I, like that, okay. that kind of thing is helpful. And again, like mm-hmm. this is so many people are carrying this mm-hmm. with them, whether they name it out loud or it's again that secret kind yeah. of shame. Yeah. Well, and the last thing I'll mention is um, just the 
the thoughts and the, the beliefs maybe that, that you've developed about intimacy. Uh, and intimacy is more than sex. Oh, yeah. Um, in, in the therapy world, it, when we say intimacy, we mean how well do you actually know your spouse? Mm-hmm. Um, how much time have you spent getting to know them? Um, do you dream together? Is there affection um, that's not always sexual? Is there non-sexual touch? Um, is there deep conversation? Mm-hmm. Is there vulnerability? Um, is there complete transparency? Those things yeah. are important. But um, any ideas you bring into a relationship that could be a cognitive distortion, like um, my body is disgusting or sex is dirty, something like that, that something that needs to be sorted out in in therapy or with some real serious journaling or do a book study on the great sex rescue um, with some friends Um, have some dialogue about it yeah it's good never too late to start over never with your spouse with your spouse (laughs) spouse. (laughs) we are not (laughs) yeah this is not yeah that's not that's not permission to just go forward in whatever midlife crisis that you are feeling at the moment okay this is with your spouse specifically. Yeah, because you'll have you'll have <laughs> your same problems with no matter who you're with. Yeah. You take yeah. your problems with you, no matter where yeah, you go. You are wherever you yeah. go. Okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you're the common denominator. Yeah. Where? Yeah. What is that? That's a good quote. Wherever you go, there you are. There that's it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So this na- this last one. This is a you know just a real bite sized question, and it's we'll light. Just, it's yeah, light. Light fair. Uh, so great way to round out the episode. Question number nine. How do non-traditional gender identities or the lack of a specific gender expression fit into the conversation about God's design? I understand that the language used by the authors of the Bible was very different than it is now, but oftentimes the same verses used on Sunday in the patriarchy sermon to empower women are used to invalidate or harm those in the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm-hmm. So thoughts, Ashley? Yeah, I have some. Uh, This is such a good question, and I was actually hoping that we would have a question around this. I hope my voice holds out um, for this last one, but um, I opened this week with the definition of patriarchy, and I said traditionally we understand patriarchy to be a system in which men hold the power and women are subordinate. But as our cultural conversation around gender keeps shifting, Another way we could say this is a system in which men hold the power and other expressions of gender are subordinate. Um, But I was really hoping that we'd get a question like this so we could dig a little bit deeper. Um, I started doing some investigating on this um, for myself because it is becoming such a part of our cultural conversation. But also, I have uh, a transgender friend. And I feel really privileged that I was able to... um, be a witness to the um, the transition uh, of this person in my life, and um, once again, you know, we always say that like fear cannot survive proximity, right? When you when you have someone in your life who um, embodies or comes from a different place it can be a really beautiful and transformational thing. And that's what this was for me. And so it became clear to me through this process with this friend that the church um, was not doing enough to, uh, to include those who identify uh, as um, something other than the binaries, uh, male or female, right? And, and, and for me, one of my core tenets is I truly believe that the gospel is for everyone. Uh I truly believe that uh, all people, 
are, are given this dignity of this choice. And um, I, I went through, a, like I say, a bit of a deconstruction um, before the birth of my first son. Um, and what kickstarted it for me was, again, this sort of narrow view of the gospel that I was presented with. But I, again, a principle for me was the, the verse in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. And so when I'm preparing a message, I always try, I don't always get it right, but I try to imagine um, what people uh, who, who might not see themselves represented in the passage that we're talking about, how they m might feel, and how can I expand this to uh, help them see themselves in this, to see that the gospel truly is for everyone. And it's not always easy to do. Um, you know, as the questioner says, the, the language used by the author, authors of the Bible was very different than it is now. You know, the terms non-binary and transgender were not part of the, the lexicon in the ancient world, right? Um, but they are now, and so how are we as teachers and church leaders speaking to, the, to that community about how and where they belong, because I, I personally believe that God doesn't leave anyone behind. Yeah. Um, and so there has been a surge in scholarship in this area as the culture, cultural conversation kind of picks up steam. Um, oftentimes, uh, and I would point people to this term, you'll hear the term um, intersex believers um, and, and scholarship that surrounds those people. Um, I believe that if we have eyes to see, we can also see that there are references to intersex people, uh, people who do not fit the binary uh -huh. of male or female in scripture, right? And again, the language used is different and the yeah. cultural context is different, but we do see that there. And I also believe that we are to approach scripture humbly, always. You know, we're to teach with authority and there are certain core truths that we cling to with everything we have. But I do believe that we approach scripture humbly. And so when we come to this conversation, I think the first place where we can see a possible reference to um, the existence of non-binary in creation is Genesis. And we talked about this in past uh, sermon series, but we see that in the creation narrative, you do have binaries like uh, light and dark and day and night. Um, and you see the separation of like, sea and land, and those are binaries, but you also see in between. You see dawn and dusk, and you see amphibians, and um, these animals and creatures that can move between, and so again, there is scholarship around this, and people much wiser than I, but I do try to approach scripture humbly, and for me, this at least opens this possibility, yeah. right, um, for non-binary distinctions within creation, right? Yeah. Um, and also an attitude that I've adopted is, just because I do not understand what it is like to not feel at home in my own body, just because um, I have kind of subscribed to the cultural ideas about what a girl, what a woman should be, and that is a fit for me, that does not negate anyone else's experience. Um, I think we need to be really respectful of other people's realities, even when we don't understand them, right? Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, too much the assumption is that it's not, because I don't experience that, it's not possible that other people right. do experience it, it's that they're making a choice to experience otherwise. Right. 
And that's not, I just, I don't think that that's the truth. Right. Because we do know, you know, there's been so much research around this. And Angie, you, you can certainly chime in here as a, as a professional. But, you know, we're trying to understand people better who identify as non-binary or transgender. And there's a lot about that that we just don't know yeah. yet. Yeah. You know, it's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. um, but we do have hard medical evidence that there are people who are born with either, you know, uh, male and female sex organs or, mm -hmm. you know, differences in, in those areas. And so we have this evidence. And in the Bible, we do have reference to eunuchs, which in an ancient context were men who had been castrated, right? And sometimes this was done to them um, so that they could serve and be trustworthy in a role like in a royal court, like they could guard the harem of a king or they could guard a queen or a princess because they could be trusted because they couldn't procreate. But Jesus himself in the book of Matthew um, addresses this and he calls back to the book of uh, Leviticus, I believe. No, Isaiah, Isaiah 55. But in Matthew 19, 11, and 12, he says um, essentially that there are there are eunuchs in the world, and some of them were born that way, some of them were made that way by others, and some of them were some people chose that life for themselves, right? And there's different interpretations on yeah. what that means. Yeah. Does that mean they don't get married? Does that mean they're celibate? And there's a lot of uh, murky scholarship there. But again, if we're approaching scripture humbly, we see that uh, there's this, there's room in the kingdom. There is room in the kingdom. And in the book of Isaiah, we see that eunuchs were not permitted to enter, but Jesus is saying, yeah, actually they are. Yeah. They are. Yeah. And we see that reinforced in Acts chapter 8 in a story about the Ethiopian eunuch yeah. who, Scripture tells us, was assigned to guard the, the queen of Ethiopia. But Philip um, comes upon this, and the Holy Spirit urges him to go to this person and instruct this person on the Scripture that, that he was reading, right? And then they pass by a body of water, and the eunuch says, is there anything preventing me from being baptized? And Philip says, no, let's go. Let's go do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Right then and there, Matt, back to what you said, God meets us where we are. Uh, the man didn't change, the, the eunuch did not change anything about himself. Maybe he couldn't have. Uh, we don't know how he ended up a eunuch. Maybe yeah. he was born that way. Maybe someone had done that to him. Maybe he lived that way by choice. But we are given the possibility here. And I think it's so important, once again, representation is important, for people who we would consider to be intersex believers who do not fit the binary of male and female to see themselves in the story, in the good news. Yeah. And so that's what I would say. Amen. No <laughs> notes. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would say in conjunction with that, yeah, that there is there's this gray area, again, that, and I think that so many well-intentioned believers are just uncomfortable with the gray. They're just not Yeah, because it's not their reality. Yeah, and so what they see and what they resonate with is, is what is truth to them. And at the end of the day, I am just, un I'm unwilling to deliver certainty on a subject that just isn't certain. It's just not, there is no, like, if God had written it exclusively and it just said no, that this, these are the only two options, there is no outlier that exists in my creation, then it's like, well, that's pretty hard to argue with there that what God's, you know, intention is, but there's, 
we have to be able to comfortably wrestle with the existence of outliers, with the existence of, of differences than what our binary minds want to accept. And at the end of the day, like even if you are, are holding fast to this idea that there is only a biological male and biological female, and that is the only way it was created, at the end of the day, it is not your job to convict them to believe the way that you believe, but instead to, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And if that is what the truth is, then that's Jesus's job to, to convict. It's Jesus's job to, to bring transformation. And that's what I think so many Christ followers are, are caught up in, and that they are the ones responsible to bring people to transformation. And that's just not what the calling is. And so, you know, at, even at best, like, what your job is, is to be Jesus in the world, just like the, the scripture in John that I, I had used for, for my message is that that's what it is, that God is love, and we're not concerned about condemnation. We're not concerned about eternity because we are to live like Jesus on earth. That's what he says. It's very clear. There's no mincing that. He doesn't say to only these people, and, and Jesus doesn't make that distinction either. It's to all the world, and so we have to I, it doesn't matter. There is no amount of convincing that you can do to explain away what we see in Scripture of these eunuchs, of, of the people that he says are born that way, some are made that way, some have chosen to be that way. Like, that's, I think, what that would, I think, encompass every gender expression that we have is some people are born that way, some people were made that way, some people have chosen to be that now, way. Now, to be like, fair in scripture, chosen to be that way out of devotion to God. Yeah. That's the context yes. there. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the, you know, there's just, again, there's a lot of things that people just really try to make certain yeah. of gray. And yeah. that's because that's how their minds work. They need a black and white to be able to move forward. Yeah. And I just, we have to be more comfortable with, with that in between of, of not knowing and that not changing the way that we follow Jesus. It's sure. like, I'm, I am more than comfortable to be wrong about yeah. things that I'm not super clear on. Like, if I'm wrong on it. If it means it, loving people. As long as, yeah, as long as I, to the best of my ability, am, am being Jesus in my community, those things are not issues that, uh, which, again, are salvific to me. Uh, you know, the if you're saying, yes, well, you know, X, Y, and Z are also Jesus. Then I'd go, hey, actually, no. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not willing to compromise on that. But there is a lot of gray that I think just exists in the world. And, you know, you have to make a decision. Are, are you able to, to be Jesus in light of that? And mm -hmm. there it is. Absolutely. And, and Angie, I want to get your take on this if you have something to offer. But I just want to provide this resource, the work of Megan DeFranza, um, has been really helpful for me. Um, and there's a great episode with her on the Bible for Normal People. I love the Bible for Normal People because it ex it exposes people to so many different perspectives on the gospel. And I may not always land in the same place that all of their guests do or even that the hosts do, but I'm so grateful for those different perspectives. And so uh, her episode is the Bible and intersex believers for those looking for more information. She has really informed yeah. my quest. Yeah. Angie, any thoughts? No, it's great. Well, yeah. great. Well, hey, Ditto. I mean, that's that's it. That's uh, I think that's all we've got. Um, any additional resources you guys want to give or you feel? Mm -hmm. I know, Angie, you've given several so far. Um, Around purity culture, the work of Linda K. Klein. Have you come across any of her? She has a website um, where she um, speaks to the harm that purity culture has done. Um, 
and the Bible for Normal People also has several episodes with experts in purity culture, some of whom are not believers, but again, that's just a perspective of someone outside the church who has seen the harm that it has caused to those inside. Yeah. 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 I don't have, uh, I would say maybe one, one that I've always kind of found helpful, um, in kind of breaking down false narratives of God or, or things that I've come up with, especially from that kind of fear-based culture, uh, is Greg Boyd's book, Letters from a Skeptic, is one of my favorite books, but it also, it addresses some of those hard questions that, that people often wrestle with, especially in the aftermath of maybe breaking down some of, of their false beliefs that they've held uh, or that they were raised with. And then the other one, this is one that, uh, you know, I, I don't know, there's a lot of episodes of this podcast, but I've, I've listened to just a few so far, and it's been incredibly helpful, and I think challenging conversations, but the, the podcast, The Holy Post, yeah. um, with Phil Vischer, and if you don't know who that is, he's the guy that created VeggieTales, and yeah. so uh, it's, a, it's an awesome podcast, but he talks about some really challenging things, and I, I just have really appreciated it so far, and so that's kind of all I've got. Yeah, good stuff. Um, in addition to the books I've already recommended, I would also um, throw out, um, it's called Try Softer, uh, a fresh approach to move us out of anxiety, stress, and survival mode into a life of connection and joy. And, that uh, sounds great. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it's written by a, th I'll a have therapist. <laughs> Her name is Andy Kolber. Uh, her last name is spelled K-O-L-B-E-R, and uh, it's an excellent, excellent book. Awesome. Nice. Oh, and one more. Um, Carolyn Custis James, The Maelstrom, um, is, is a, a resource I leaned heavily on. Ooh, my voice is going for this recent sermon. It's okay. fantastic. All right. Well, hey, that's it uh, for our episode. If you, uh, if you listen to this episode and you've got more questions, again, feel free to text those in 94000. Uh, we're going to record again in a couple weeks. Uh, hopefully we'll have Rob as a part of that conversation as well. We'll have Angie back um, because we need to talk.